0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, though they're arguably Harrison and star Cliff and Bobo.
1: Hey, what's going on, Cliff? Uh, nothing much, man. Just excited for tonight's interview. Yep, we got a good one tonight. We got the legendary Dennis Full out of Colorado
0: yeah, yeah, I, I we've been trying to uh, rope Dennis into this for a long time. and we finally managed to schedule him in. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know who Dennis is, Dennis is a longtime big footer. He has had some uh, firsthand uh, experience with a lot of rather famous situations over the years, Um, not the least of which, of course, is the Erickson Project, but he's a great big footer unto himself as well. Uh, He's been doing this for a long time. I venture to say decades, but I mean, why listen to me, man? We got when we got Dennis on the phone. Let's go straight to him. Dennis, how are you doing this evening?
2: I'm doing good, Cliff and Bobo. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, love it! Thanks so much for coming on, man. I really, really p- appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, Dennis, um, I, for people who don't know who you are, um, why don't you give us a little uh, background on yourself? Um, how long you've been doing this Bigfoot thing? Maybe what got you into it, and then we'll jump into the meat of the conversation.
2: Well, don't want to bore anyone too much. It's you know, like like many of us out there that uh, get you know got into bigfooting is. We we kind of uh, we kind of got pushed into it involuntarily. We uh, you know we're we were big campers and outdoors people here in Colorado, and you know raised my kids uh, doing a lot of camping and stuff here in the mountains, and just had several experiences over a couple years back um, around the year 2000, 99, nine two thousand while camping up in the high country here in Colorado. And uh, these experiences, uh, you know, like I said, I've done a lot of outdoor stuff and and these things were just troubling to me because um, the experiences were unusual, you know, just unexplainable, um, at least in my mind. And uh, I didn't really think Bigfoot. I just thought maybe people or bears that were acting strange around our camps at night in the dark, um, you know, that kind of stuff. but I just couldn't, uh, I, I just couldn't, you know, come to grips with what, what had happened in uh, those particular areas. You know, we did a lot of fishing and hiking and, and all that good stuff outdoors. And then when Bigfoot became part of the equation back then, and suddenly this was a reality, it changes your whole your whole way of life, right? It changes the whole paradigm, everything you've ever believed and thought. Oh. <laughs> and and then, in some ways, it's kind of like, all right, I get to go outdoors and not only fish or hike or hunt, uh, but now I get to, um, you know, do this bigfooting thing, and that—that that is just a whole, like I said, a whole new dimension that adds to—I uh, think the uh, incredible um, excitement of uh, of life of living.
1: <laughs> you know, everyone's got stories, but. You're one of the few people that's yeah. actually got real, legitimate Sasquatch footage.
2: That was, um, yeah, the 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 time I spent with the Erickson project. Um, you know, that was uh, five years from 2005 to uh, roughly 2010, uh, when when they kind of you know pulled out of that whole situation. It was kind of a it didn't come to an end that I would have. Hope to have uh, seen, you know, but, um, it was time and, and I'm, I'm glad that it's behind me now. I really am. I mean, I've had some experiences with that, uh, guys that, um, I just wish, you know, words can't convey. I, I couldn't try to convince anybody what happened there. Um, you know, what we experienced, what we've seen told me for sure that these things are absolutely real and they're incredible. Uh, But you'd have to have been there, I guess, is all I can say. I wish that it would have gone different in several ways. And that's, you know, the main one was if we could have had better cooperation from the people we were working with. If, uh, you know, we could have uh, been able to do things the way we wanted to do there. Now, I am going to say that, you know, that it could have turned out better, but I don't really know that, you know, this is a subject that it's just so hard and difficult to try to get evidence, a uh, good evidence, you know, evidence that stands on its own. That, that's, um, you know, you don't have to, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't have to explain that. Um, uh, how's that called cliff? It it stands on its own,
0: not subjective. You're talking about objective evidence. You're talking not subjective where you need somebody yes. to correlate yeah, your objective evidence that stands on its own. You can, you can analyze the evidence without without necessarily knowing the context, although sometimes the context helps, like the Patterson Gimlin film or a footprint, for example, before we start, you know, uh, meta talking about this whole situation, you said something really important uh, Dennis, earlier. It's basically like you know, um unless you were there, you just can't know basically. I, I you didn't those weren't the words, but that was the gist. Um, but you were there. You were one of the people who actually lived at the property off and on through the years, uh, you and Leela. I know you personally, I consider you a friend and a fellow researcher, et cetera, but you know, to get the story of the Erickson project offline, well, that's like a full-time endeavor that would probably take weeks because it's been buried under so much nonsense, hogwash myth, legend, and stretching of the truth. But you—you're a witness. You're involved in. The, you were involved in it at the time. You were on the site. Can you t- kind of just give us the gist of how it began and some of the highlights and how the thing ended at uh, at the very end of the project?
2: You know, the whole thing started, and uh, I know you guys were in the BFRO at the time. And do you guys remember when that report came in? Uh, that oh, was yeah. in June of two thousand five it came in as actually the initial report came in from the neighbor next door who lived next door to these people. And it was, it was the, it was the son-in-law. I want to say it was the son-in-law of the neighbors who had come over to hang out with the, with his girlfriend or something. And something, there was a big commotion next door and the sheriff showed up and some other stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And and these people, they live fairly close to each other, uh, but their property lines dropped way back in the back. Now, in Kentucky, if you've been to that part of Kentucky, um, it, it's a lot of the homes are built on um, what they call up above the hollows on these little rural roads, and it's it's pretty well back country out there, right? Mm-hmm. The hollows behind these homes are very thickly wooded, very heavily wooded. And in fact, I I was told on a number of occasions, even the people that live there, um, and outdoors guys, the enthusiasts, don't go into the hollows that much. It's just that it's overgrown. It's like a jungle, and it really is. I mean, it's a it's a eastern jungle. I mean, it's you know thickets and um, thick woods and underbrush, and um, some of it's not very easy to get through. Uh, but they wouldn't go down into these hollows. Well, this this house where they were sitting uh, dropped off behind the house, right into a deep hollow like that. And the neighbors were next door. They lived, you know, uh, I want to say sixty, seventy yards from them was this other house, and and their home dropped off too, back behind this hollow. Well, they've been there for a while, and 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 uh, up to that point, I think they dismissed a lot of the strange stuff as, you know, just. You know, people will just ignore some of the stuff that happens around there. They just kind of go into the house at night and not uh, pay attention. Well, uh, this couple had moved in, and uh, the woman that was involved, she had grown up on that house. And according to her, her her mother was feeding wild animals behind their house at night. Now, this is a very rural and poor part of Kentucky, so these people were not very well off and, um, you know, uh, just one of those— Poor areas and she would tell her her as a young girl when she was four or five she said she could remember her mom go you know take the dinner scraps out behind the house and put them out at the tree line and feed the wild animals <clears throat> but she would follow her mom out there and her mom would um, put the stuff out and go back towards the house and they said they'd hear sounds or weird things back there but they wouldn't pay too much attention it was too dark you know and um, one night, she said she was looking out the back window of her house, and at that time, they had an outhouse right at the tree line, uh, you know, back behind the house. And, it, it, you know, it was out 50, 60 yards from the back of the house. And uh, she said that she saw this man, look like a man. It was an upright figure standing next to this outhouse. Uh, it was in the dark, but you could see the silhouette. <laughs> And she said that the thing that troubled her was this man's head was as high as the roof of the outhouse, which had to be, you know, seven, eight, nine foot tall. And her, she asked her mom about it. Her mom said, well, that's just your cousin. You know, she gave her some excuse that, you know, her mom intimated she knew what it was, but she really didn't want to scare her or tell her. But later on, she found out that, you know, this um, the, these things were coming up and taking these dinner scraps and as she got older she felt it she felt compelled to continue to put food out as her mom moved out and her family moved out and she inherited this house but she felt compelled to still take food and put food in the back for these things because for some reason she thinks she thought she had to feed them uh, but i'm getting way ahead of myself guys sorry um <laughs> let me get back to how that started The neighbors saw this commotion and the sheriff had showed up and all this stuff had happened. And they had he had submitted the report to the BFRO and said basically in his report, hey, we saw some weird stuff at our neighbor's house. They're not saying what it was, but my dad said he saw this thing that looked like a Bigfoot and it scared the hell out of him. And uh, I wanted you guys to know Uh, that was basically the the short of the uh, report. And then one of our local investigators, I think his name was uh, Greg Clay had gone out there to look at it, um, just talk to the people. And then Stan Courtney also, uh, he was, I think he was several hours away. Um, He decided to go out there and meet with them. And when they started spending time there on the property, which didn't take long, I guess they actually witnessed one of these things off the side of the road, Uh, big red glowing eyes, about eight foot tall. You know back in the trees and they came away from that location in shock because uh these guys were like well we really didn't expect um you know any of this to happen we just thought we were going to go talk to some people and boom all of a sudden we find ourselves in this uh really active situation and and um then they got matt involved and matt went out there and uh as you guys know he took some recording equipment um, uh, but the but the husband of the woman who lived there um, had known by then too, and he took a camcorder down and eventually got some footage. We didn't all get to see it for a while, but it was one walking down in the trees, down in the very thickly wooded uh, area down below this pond, and we get about two or three seconds of this thing just kind of walking from the right to the left, and we can see it from the side view. A lot of that footage and stuff that we collected from that location was taken by her, by the woman who had this ongoing relationship with these things, <clears throat> and uh, the husband of her also got a couple pieces, you know. But um, we we collected some pieces of footage, like a piece, of, a couple pieces of thermal imaging footage. Uh, this was early on; we were using some antiquated old uh, Raytheon two hundred and fifty Ds, and had issues trying to feed, you know, recording units and uh, getting good dependable feeds from the units to the recorders and um, older um, technology when it comes to game cameras. Yeah, we did have game cameras out. We had, um, you know, thermal imaging units, again, older stuff. But, you know, this is back when that technology was very expensive still and, and not very reliable. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff we got was just very short, um you know pieces that you couldn't really make much detail out or get much information from unfortunately but she was able to collect a few pieces of footage um that i think some people have seen like the sleeping footage and uh one that they call matilda the the facial footage where it's sitting down in the trees and um but you know for me the entirety of this this project i i always was trying to. I was trying to gather uh, more substantial evidence. Again, stand, something that stands on its own, not uh, subjective, but something that stands on its own. You know, longer lengthy pieces of footage, uh, more details, um, um, and, and anything that happened around there. I tried to encourage them to, to constantly carry cameras and film. And that was difficult, it was hard for, for us to get cooperation from them do the things we wanted them to do they were very um adamant about um uh, a lot of things you know privacy and and uh um doing things the way they wanted to do it so we had a lot of a lot of issues and, and resistance in many ways but again you know i we we did get stuff it's just i wish it was better i wish that we could have accomplished more but you know i look back at what we did do and um you know, it, it is something.
0: Historically, I think you got the very, very first uh, thermal footage of a Sasquatch ever. Am I am I right about that, or?
2: We, we think we did. Yeah, we believe we did. And, and you know what was interesting, Cliff? I, I, touching on that subject, and I feel like I'm going all over the place. Um, I, I don't talk about this too often, so forgive me. I'm not very polished when it comes to speaking about it, but. Uh, You're
0: in good company. Don't that- worry about that. <laughs>
2: All oh, right. right well this thermal footage that um we obtained we well I, I just don't want to take a lot of time but basically we had we could not stand in the fields and, and and hold cameras up and expect to get anything um luckily we were surrounded by a lot of uh thick kentucky woods and um, these things would come from different directions and angles so during our time when we were there trying to collect more video evidence We would go out in the fields in the evening and at night sometimes during the day but mostly at night of course and um we would try to collect footage and most of the time we didn't get anything guys i mean it was i spent countless hours i mean hundreds if not several thousand hours sitting out in tree stands and you know out in the dark in the fields and the rain and the snow and the wind you know and and i I, most of the time i didn't see or get anything but the few occasions that we did um you know was just so exciting when you knew that they were out there they were you know real close um and in this one particular occasion and now leela was working with us then um on their property and they had an old barn in the back and we had devised a plan to take some thermals there raytheon 250ds out to this old barn and hide in the barn be- well before dark and you know sneak in there and then try to hide and then stay back in there and hope that these things would come out we'd we'd ask the woman to bring uh, some food out or whatever she does come out and talk to them and see if she can coax them out of the woods so maybe we can get a you know uh, a video or a shot of them well this particular night uh, i think she had gone out and she'd done some talking and stuff for a while and then she went back to the house as she was have to do quite a bit she would go back in the home and let us do our thing outside till midnight one two o'clock in the morning Um, and we sat out there for hours in the back of this barn what we had done guys is we'd cut these little holes in the back of the barn they they let us cut these little holes in this uh, old wood of the barn right (laughs) and and we had it just large enough to The lens of this thermal camera would fit into it so we could view out the back of the barn towards the tree lines and the hollow where we, you know, we knew that they were coming out by this old pond and stuff, but where we knew they were coming out. And um, again, I was sitting there one night and uh, I'm trying to recall exactly what happened, but I've been there for quite a while and hadn't seen anything. And with this thermal imaging, you know, you could see a mouse running around out. They're you know hundred yards away. You can see a little pinpoint dot, you know, running around with a thermal. You guys know how the thermals work. Um, Not anything that you know. Every everything warm warm blooded uh, is going to show up and and, you know look like a spotlight out there in the dark with a thermal imager because of the you know the way they work. Everyone that knows how a thermal imager works uh, understands you know that it's the heat that creates the image. um, You know the radiation of the, the body heat. And so I'm watching this thing and nothing had been going on and I'm literally falling asleep and um, getting ready to just call it quits that night. I I remember seeing this little uh, faint glimmer or faint faint little shine down near the tree line. And this thing is dropping. The the, the land drops down significantly right when it goes in the tree line. So this thing's walking up this like incline through this very thick trees and brush. And I see it kind of come up and and it's back in behind all the trees so i can't get a full image and don't know exactly what it is but i can see it's fairly large and then as it got close to the edge of the trees i realized it was one of them and uh, i don't know which one but it was it was it was upright it was bipedal and it just was standing behind all this thick foliage guys it's it's pitch black it's dark outside there's not even a moon right and i'm and this thing's about a hundred 100 yards away down in the trees, and I'm in the back of the barn. And I thought I was pretty well hidden, and I hear a rock hit the back of the barn, right? So that had happened several times. So apparently they knew we were in the barn, <laughs> but they would, they would literally throw rocks at the barn, and we would think we are pulling something over, you know, pulling the wool over their eyes, literally, and, and they knew that we were there. Um, I don't think we ever really surprised them, but, um, you know, we heard a rock hit the barn several times. And whatever, this thing was back there in the in the uh, trees. And so here's the interesting thing. It was behavior is what really fascinated me because when I reviewed that footage later, this went on for about three, I want to say three and a half, four minutes. It was back behind these, this very thick foliage and it wouldn't come out of the foliage. It stood behind this foliage and it kind of was looking towards us, towards the barn. And then eventually it turns and it leaves and it walks back down at an angle kind of in the same direction it came from, and disappears back into the thick foliage. Well, what's fascinating again was was the way it behaved pitch black. We're hiding in the barn. We think that it doesn't know we're there, but I, I think it did. Um, it never came out of the trees, but its behavior back and behind that, it, it was swaying. You could see it, once it, it kind of locked in on the barn, it started rocking a little to the left and to the right. and I know we've heard of other people describing them doing that, you know, um, kind of uh, doing that rocking motion. I know you guys have heard people describe that behavior from time to time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was doing that. and it, But I couldn't tell if it was just that it was trying to look around the foliage towards the barn or not because you could see it lean out a little further and then go back in and kind of go to the left and then back to the right, swing a little further out to the right, pause a second or two and look. And then go back behind and it did that and it never stopped really moving it just kind of you know kind of rocked and swayed subtly and sometimes a little bit more aggressively but it, it just sat back there the entirety of this time kind of looking towards that direction and then suddenly without warning it just turns and it's gone it's it's just walking down the hill and, and, and leaving again back into the trees so here's a behavior that really I uh, you know i i, I guess i should have known this but it was fascinating in that It's pitch black, we can't see nothing with our eyes, uh, as with human eyes, right? Uh, Without this camera, I'd never known that it was there, but it still acted so cautiously and so carefully that it wouldn't even come out behind thick foliage in this pitch black, um, thinking that we might've been around there. Um, It was was fascinating to me because that tells you that we really, you know, you, you we just don't understand these creatures. They're, they're just um, they're just incredibly stealthy and very, very careful on, you know, trying to show themselves or, or you know, allowing us to see them. Um, but, but it was fascinating. That was just a little behavioral thing that I just found extremely fascinating. You know, how did it know that I couldn't see in the dark? You know, how do they know that? They must know that, right? But at the same time, they're still so cautious and careful not to uh, come out from behind that bush. If it had come out from behind that bush, I still wouldn't have been able to see it. It was too too dark, you know, without the the aid of that that uh, thermal cam. So anyways, I just found that fascinating,
0: you know, and um I've often thought about that because now we have several pieces of footage of of, of these things, and they're always hiding even in the dark. And, and like, uh, A long time ago, I kind of thought to myself, back when we didn't have a lot of footage, I might have even spoken to you about this one point, Dennis, um, uh, that I, I definitely think they're hiding from us in the dark. And the reason for that is probably something like, uh, I always think about, you know, my, my own experience and, you know, Sasquatches are smart, don't get me wrong, but they're not, you know, doing math or, you know, using fire and stuff like that. They're not, they're not doing that kind of stuff with their intelligence. They're applying it else how, you know? Um, so when I think back to my experience and I remember once, and I'm tying this back into what we we're talking about here when I was young, like maybe about, I don't know, 10, nine, seven, somewhere in there. Um, and I learned that dogs see in black and white, you know, instead of color, you know, they don't have color vision like we have. Um, uh, it, I couldn't wrap my head around that. It's just what it was outside of my own experience. And therefore I had a hard time c- conceptualizing that. Like I didn't even know how you would know because I didn't know about rods and cones and those sort of, uh, you know, eye cells at that time, but I couldn't really wrap my head around it. I kind of think that that's where they're coming from. Is that like well yeah they can see in the dark just fine and here are here we are running around kind of looking like them they must look at us and realize and just like we look at them and say wow that's a lot like me that's weird and so I I, I think that they kind of give us credit where it is not due that they think we have night vision just like they do therefore they just treat us like them. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
2: of thought it was just very odd that they would that that even with all the advantage they have, you know, with with their stealthiness and and how they can move through that thick stuff, Cliff. They move through that stuff like a, like a mouse. Okay, so here you got this this large bipedal uh, creature, and that thing's moving through this thick, dense foliage, and it's hardly making any sound at all. I mean, this is some other experiences we've had in the past. So that combined with its behavior that night, you know. I couldn't. I probably would never have heard it approach. I definitely couldn't see it in the dark. Yet it was so extremely cautious um, about even, uh, you know, showing itself or making itself vulnerable by, you know, coming out into the open. Um, it just. I don't know. I mean, I, I I know we all knew that they're that way to some extent, but to actually see that behavior was fascinating for me. So yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, we, we our, uh, yeah. We all have our, we all have models, what we think Sasquatches are, but when you're like, I had that, uh, an experience recently and I, one wasn't around me, but I got to track one for a little while. Um, it pulled some casts and stuff like that just is about a month and a half, two months ago. And the stuff, the thing was going through just, but like the fact that let alone the, I mean, I, the witness was there, he heard it moving around and stuff through there, you know, but when I saw where this thing walked and and I listened to the witness who heard it go and, uh, and, the speed with which it went through this stuff relatively quietly, like you were saying, and this one, this wasn't trying to sneak around. It's phenomenal to see where these things choose to walk and the, the stealth and quietness with which they walk there. It's staggering. It's, it's actually kind of scary in some ways.
2: Yeah. You, 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 you begin to really see how they live the way they do, how they get, how that we we know so little about them because as you said earlier cliff i think we're trying to uh, relate our own experiences and our own uh <laughs> our own abilities to these because they're upright they're bipedal we think that they're you know going to have a lot of the same manner mannerisms and abilities we do but they go so far above and beyond <laughs> even even our best sensibilities, you know, our, our ability to hear and see, and um, even as you said, just leaving sign behind. If they don't want to leave sign, I, I, they're just masters at, um, you know, evasion and stealth. And mm. it, it's just extraordinary. So that's why, you know, you start to think when you find a print, um, which we did find a few. Now, we didn't find that many, but you know, one of the ones that really struck or, you know, stood out to me was an experience that uh, we had towards the end of the project where it was January, we had a fresh snowfall, a couple, three inches, and um, the woman had gone out and put food out at the edge of this tree line near, it, there was a lot of tobacco fields out there, so you have these big wide open areas. I want to describe that so you kind of have it in your minds. eye, understand what I'm talking about, but. You got these large open areas, you open fields, and then like like I said, a lot of them are they're growing tobacco and stuff on. So uh, in the winter, these things are just pretty well barren, right? And then it's surrounded by all these thick, heavy tree lines on all four sides. and And she would walk out to the edge of one of these and then go right at the, into the tree line and, and talk or does what, you know, she had some things she would do to see if they're around. They weren't always around guys. They were not like always there. They would come and they would go and, you know, a couple, three or four days, she wouldn't hear anything from them. Sometimes two weeks, she wouldn't hear anything from them. And then suddenly they would just be there and she would know they're around. Cause she'd go outside to feed the dogs or do something outside. And she'd hear a a snap from the trees, a deliberate crack from a branch or, you know, a sound, um, these things made in a, a very distinctive um, sound out there that it is like a grunting sound. I've recorded it several times. Um, I can produce it very well because I've heard it so many times, but it's basically just a very guttural like that just sound just like that. You would just hear it come from the trees. And so she would know they are around, so then she would go out later and take, you know, her pancakes or, um, or you know, whatever food that she had. Sometimes she'd just give them leftovers from dinner, but she would put them out there and hope they would take it. Now, she would put food down, guys, but then again, even if we felt, felt they were there, they wouldn't always take it. It wasn't one of those things that, oh, yeah, you could put food down, just stand there and wait for them to take it, and you've got something, right? They were always ahead of us by, I don't know, 10 steps. And when we thought we could trick them and pull them and see them and do, we tried every angle we could think of. Um, They were just so unpredictable. They wouldn't come into the same spot all the time. They would, they would approach areas from different directions all the time, never from the same direction twice, um, never at the same times. They wouldn't take the food she'd put out. Half the time, I'm going to tell you that right now, uh, you know, 60, 70 percent of the time, she probably they, the food would get eaten by a cat or, you know, a stray dog or raccoons. Um, and we know that, you know, but, you know, there was a few times that they did. And um, but it is particular night she was she had put food out and it had just snow and I was there and she said that she thought she'd heard one of them so we had went back to the house and we were at the house for a good 45 minutes to an hour and i went back out with her husband to the to the area that she had put the food um in the edge of this field and cliff and and Bobo, i know both you guys have found tracks in in all your time doing this but here's what i came across guys i came across a trackway that came out of the tree line, and it went in a big arc, a big semicircle and arc, maybe 150 to 170 footprints in total. Um, It came out of the tree, went in an arc, and then went back towards where she put the plate and went back into the trees again. And it was only minutes old in the snow. Hmm. Wow. I was elated. I was like, I cannot believe what, I, what we just found. And I, I was so excited. And I told them both. I said, I need to get out there. I called Leela. I said, bring your, your snow casting, um, material. Cause we had stuff there for that. Um, we hadn't really got to use it at the time, but, um, we had, uh, we had spray wax, forensic spray wax, you know, for uh, setting snow prints and, uh, um, we went back out there with with that and some uh, hydro cal and I started to cast three of the tracks. I cast a left and a right and a left. And I was expecting to walk that that whole you know track line and try to find some better prints because the snow it was pretty cold. It was fourteen degrees, I believe, at the time. So the snow was still fresh and it was a little powdery. It was difficult, you know, to get a good impression, but they were still, you know, the, the track still maintained pretty well, the, the shape of the, the track, you know, stayed in there pretty well. So we sprayed several layers of the wax in there and got it set up. And eventually I cast it and two of the three kind of blew out one side or the other, but still got most of it. And one of them turned out really, really pretty good. And that's one I need to send you still Cliff. Uh, but it was a 17 and a half inch footprint, um, showed all the toes. And it even had the impression of one of the oak leaves on the on the field was still at the bottom of that, um, that trap where it impressed down into it. And um, what happened is I was planning to stay out there that whole night and cast a bunch of tracks. And they flipped out and they didn't like me doing it because she felt like because I was out there casting tracks that I was going to scare them away. And they would freak out and long story short is it turned into a huge blow up in a fight with the people because i was trying to press them to allow me to cast and document all these tracks and they just didn't want me messing around with the tracks but i was able to get three of them out of there and uh again to this day it was one of those most disappointing it was bittersweet because i had this whole trackway and i could have photographed it but it was the middle of the night i did take some video of it but it's not very good quality because it's night and the, the you know the, the cameras are. Um, you know your your video quality degrades in the dark, and when you're using a little, little spotlight, it it just just one of those bittersweet moments where I I just I had to walk away from it because it it was very difficult to uh, do many of the things that we felt like we needed to do. Uh, Leela ran into that quite a bit with them, and I I know I think you've talked to to Lila several times, right, Bobo.
1: I was in contact with that whole time. I almost got to go out there and be your roommate. Adrian, when he first was going out there, I talked to him a couple of times on the phone about, cause I was wide open. I'm like, man, I'm just on a worry on a fishy, boat. I can jump off anytime. I was like, dude, uh, cause Lila didn't want to trespass. She didn't want to go down to those haulers by herself. She, she was trying to, she's law abiding. I'm like, dude, I will do whatever it takes. I will cross property lines. I'll climb down them haulers. I'll, I'll track them back to where they're sleeping. And Adrian almost did it. Then he, then he decided not to at the last minute.
0: For our listeners who may not know, uh, we haven't really told them who Leela is. And I think a lot of people are probably hearing these stories for the first time. Uh Leela, she she's a, um, a a Princeton graduate. She has a PhD. Um, is it a wildlife biology or something like that? Um, she I think she's still living yeah. back east in Pennsylvania or something at this point. Um, but yeah, she they had a bona fide legitimate hardcore PhD living on the property for years, uh, documenting whatever came up. Um, and I imagine some of that is some of the most thorough, uh, most scientific documentation that's ever been obtained.
2: She lived on the, on the location for nearly five years of that project. Uh, unfortunately, um, there was some irreconcilable differences between her and the, uh, the couple that, made it very difficult for her, uh, you know, eventually to, to do, um, uh, her research properly. So she kind of, uh, spent the last few years there, uh, just, you know, analyzing any evidence we got and, um, processing stuff, particularly at the end, she was very helpful with the DNA. Um, when we were able to obtain, we got some hair samples from there, uh, guys, you know, we got, Um, you know, the unknown primate hair samples. Um, We got a number of saliva samples off the plates um, that we sent in for testing, DNA testing. Uh, A lot of it started out through the DNA. I think it was Paleo Labs, Paleo DNA out of Thunder Bay, Ontario. We were sending them up there for our a few years and uh one of the one of the scientists i was working with up there one of the uh analysts up there i guess uh, would be his title he uh he basically told me he says you know what what these samples keep coming back as is um uh human contamination and we knew at that point you know leland knew how to handle the, the materials we were working with, and I did too. We we knew what we were doing there. We weren't, you know, we were very careful about contaminating, uh, you know, the, the the plates that we were presenting to these things uh, with the food on it. So we were what we were trying to do is get the saliva samples from the plates that she would put out. This woman would put out. We would we would methodically handle them uh, to minimize human contact. Rubber gloves. Uh, try not to, you know. Um, you know get any uh you know put a place underneath you so you don't get cells falling onto it or any other way to contaminate these sa- samples so when we got these plates back and we felt like they were you know the food was taken by the sasquatch there uh that we could take that sample and send it into these labs and and see if you know we can have a dna analysis done on them and see what they come back as
1: Wouldn't they eat them with the, when they had syrup on they eat the whole paper plate right
2: No, no, they didn't eat the plate. What they do, Bobo, is they would lick the plate clean. So she would put, she would put syrup on those plates with pancakes, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't always pancakes. She would put uh, other food on there. Sometimes it would be dinner scraps with gravy, but they would literally lick the plates clean and, you know, leaving saliva, which we felt like they had to have left saliva on those plates because they were literally licked clean. And it's at one point, she was placing peanut butter on 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 bread, on on sliced bread, white bread, put peanut butter on there and then put you know uh, hot or uh, syrup on it. And that peanut butter when it puts when it sticks to the plate, it's like glue. you know how peanut butter is. Yeah. Um, it it would stick like glue to the plate, and they would literally lick that peanut butter clean off the plate. When they did take it when it wasn't some other animal. when they took it, we knew, we were very confident. We weren't 100% sure all the time, but we were confident that they actually took the food off that plate, take that plate, and Leela would process it. And we would, we would send it up to uh, this DNA uh, diagnostic, or not DNA diagnostic, paleo, paleo DNA labs in, in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And we worked with this guy for several years, and, and we had sent him, I don't know, 10, 15 samples. And eventually, the guy he told me on the phone. He says, "You know, Dennis. He says, I think what's what's happening here is we would do uh, now. What's it called? It's been a number of years. I forgot. Uh, what's it called when they do the uh, the initial testing on a on a sample to determine if it's a cat or a dog or a human or a bear?"
1: Is it preliminary?
2: yeah just to determine species right uh just to roll in or rule out other things they would do a base uh, a base pair or something like that work up and I, i'm sorry guys i can't remember the name it's been a while uh, but they would they would do that initial dna test to check and see what uh, if, if it you know if it's something explainable uh you know that that you know left their dna on that plate and in. Some cases it did come back as, you know, a cat or a stray, but there was a few of them. I, I want to say there was between 10 and 15 of them that what we came back with was um, was a, a human, it came back as human uh, DNA. And so we said to ourselves, well, you know, we've been doing this long enough. We're very confident that we're not contaminating these samples. Um, and, but then at that time I'd been talking to several other people who said that they were doing, um, also, uh, sending in, you know, hair samples with the, with the skin tags at the, at the, at the bottom of the, at the cluster of the hair, at the base of the hair that will yield DNA. And they were having the same problems with, with their samples as that they were all being told that they're being, they're, they're being contaminated and that, that was explaining it. I think even, uh. Were you guys aware of uh, that incident that um, Owen Caddy had up in, in Washington State, I believe, or it might have been Oregon? Cliff, are you aware of that one?
0: No, I haven't heard much from Owen Caddy since probably 2005 or something like that. No.
2: Yeah. so i I spoke with owen on the phone and i I probably shouldn't be saying this other than i can tell you that owen was on a location that he was very confident Uh, he was with a a researcher uh working with a family out in the woods i believe it was oregon i want to say northern oregon uh but long story short is that this family was having continuing visitations uh, they had seen these things on their back porch. They heard them walking back and forth on this uh, covered porch in the back of their home. And their house was right up against the woods. And they found uh, trackways. And um, they'd seen these things. You know, They were getting into a freezer in the back of the house. There was a freezer, a chest freezer or something back there that he could put you know, his game in. And that stuff was disappearing. And they actually would hear him get in there and open the lid. And they would take this frozen meat out of there. Uh, and then, if I remember correctly, what Owen told me is that they had a incident happen one night where he went out and investigated himself with the investigator, and this said all just happened, and it was still fresh. He said that this thing had come in on the back patio or back porch had hit its head on a light bulb, apparently cut its head or something and left blood on the on the porch that he Owen collected a sample of that blood. And he said he knew it was one of them because he could see the trackway coming out of the trees and over this juniper bush or some ground-hugging bush, and it stepped right over the top of this, you know, long strides and these big footprints in the snow, and it went right back, it went up to the porch and went back out. And so Owen told me, he says, Dennis, I said, I was sure I had it. And he had sent his sample in and did the base uh, work up on that or the, you know identification and it came back as human. And Owen said after that, he threw in the towel. He said, I was done. I just, He says, I was confident I had it. And they are telling me it was contaminated. So, you know, at that point, we're thinking, well, you know, maybe there's something more to this. And in my talks with this uh, paleo DNA lab up in uh, British, uh, up in Ontario, Canada, the guy, you know, was- well aware of what we were doing. He knew what Adrian was doing and Adrian was paying for these samples and they were costing us several thousand dollars every time we sent one up to have it tested and we were just not getting results. And eventually this guy says, well, maybe you need to have a complete uh, genome made up on that. Maybe next time you get a good sample, just have a complete workup. And I said, well, is that something you could do? He said, well, I could, but the problem is is that the consumables in a lab would cost so much money in this time. He says, you're literally talking, you know, hundred thousand dollars or more and, and a lot of time to do this so it seemed like an insurmountable problem you know for us to to have uh, you know this 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 type of test done but we knew that at some point there's got to be something more to this because you know it can't be that every one of those samples has been contaminated by people it just can't be i mean there's just people from different areas that were confident that they're You know, we we had moved far enough along that we knew, you know, a lot of these uh, researchers had known how to handle that, how to handle handle those samples properly without contaminating or at least minimizing it. So they couldn't all just be coming back as contaminated by humans. So there has to be more to it. And, um, you know, to this day, I guess you guys already know, you know, what Melba's, um, uh, you know, what, what her results have come out to be. Now, at that point, um i guys i don't know all i can tell you is that i know that the sample we collected and the samples uh that we'd be collected there on the project including the last one which was a blood sample um i know that it wasn't contaminated and leela handled that very well um and i can't tell you to this day uh you know what what we're dealing with there but um, you know once once we submitted that blood sample to to um, to melba it was out of my hands and um you know i uh i don't know you know again to this day what what uh what truly could come out of that or if anything useful will ever come out of that you know
0: yeah i'm not sure i i I, you know i'm on record as basically saying i don't think that was handled appropriately or or well i think so i think that science if you want to call it that is uh rather questionable and should be double checked and double checked and double checked at you know forever Always, always, always yeah. more and more and more and to see what other results from other people and other labs, et cetera. But I understand there's some proprietary technology being claimed and all that, which is always a red flag. I think that if, you know, one person has the key to the door and that's it forever, then what good is that, man? That's not science because science is about reproducing these results. And um, the technology like that yeah. should be shared to see what else might come out of it. But, you know, um, so I, when you were telling these stories, I was thinking – You know, I haven't had any uh, cool DNA stuff, unfortunately, in my big footing career, but I've been pretty close, you know, because I work with the guys from the Olympic project a lot. And uh, when those nests came uh, out a few years ago, it came out like they're a product, but you know. But like when the nests kind of hit the hit the news, the bigfoot news wire, I suppose, a few years ago, um, it was really promising. And I know Meldrum went out there and took core samples of several of the nests uh, and uh, had some EDNA work done on them. And they also got um, human contamination in these, which is possible, of course. After all, humans did in fact you know, collect the samples, uh, but they were careful sure. to choose nests that humans had not laid down in yet and all this other stuff. Um, and I was talking to Dr. Meldrum about this and kind of bounced, just bouncing ideas around with them, you know? And, um, and if these things are what I think they are, and you know, I think they're Paranthropus. I think they're a robust australopithecine essentially. Um, I've, I've kind of gone away from the giganto thing a bit. Um, but it, although that's possible and on the table, as well, but I think they're australopithecines, which is a direct human ancestor. It's a hominin. Um, okay. uh, some of the more recent ones, when it when extinct, as recently as you know, eight hundred thousand years ago, which is pretty recent. So, and especially the way you're describing it, and I don't know exactly. I don't know about DNA technology because you know, once you go down that path, that's all you're doing the rest of your life. There's just so much to know and to learn. Um, the if they're doing these preliminary studies, it makes me kind of feel like perhaps you know, was, they were still focusing in on the picture, so to speak. You know, you don't have to have a photo, you don't have to have a focused picture of Bobo to know it's Bobo. Um, and if these things, we broke off from them, perhaps, you know, less than a million years ago or who knows, you know, certainly less than two million years ago, maybe, I don't know. Um, I'd have to wonder if our DNA is actually all that different because we share ninety-eight what three percent 4% Um, of our DNA is absolutely identical to the bonobo, the the pygmy chimpanzee. And we split off from them six or eight million years ago. And, you know, so if you're talking about a factor of three to five difference, their DNA might be astonishingly similar to us. Um, But then again, like I say, to put it in perspective, we uh, 60%, a full 60% of our DNA is identical to an earthworm. You know, so uh, yeah, true, th- yeah. You know, those little percentage points, you know, uh, mean a whole yeah. lot of difference. You know, because I can yeah. picture, I can picture the um, you know, some people out there going, Dude, you're calling me an ape because I'm a human?" Well, yeah, you're an ape because you're a human, honestly. But um, and there's the other side of the thing uh, where like you're calling Bigfoots or uh um, yeah, I don't know. There's both sides of that coin, I suppose. You know, people sure. get mad that yeah. I call humans apes, and then people get mad that I call Sasquatches humans or vice versa. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, you know I, I mean. I, I'm totally. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. I, and, and that's the thing that frustrated me is I felt like what we were dealing with was, I, I felt like for a longest time, Cliff, that we were dealing with, um, well, the people that we were dealing with were looking for a great eight for Gigantopithecus, and they were trying to find you know any indication or markers that were leaning in that direction. So. When these samples were sent in, if it didn't instantly ping in that direction, they just wrote it off as contamination. Now, I'm, I'm the first to admit it very well could have been in, in some of those cases, but with the propensity of the, uh, the uh, uh, amount of samples we sent in, I knew that all of them couldn't have been. And I knew that Leela was handling the, you know, the samples properly she was disciplined there. She was trained there. And the way we collected them, we were very careful to avoid contaminating. Um, so where I was leaning with that is that I think that what we were dealing with was something that's so close to us. I, and I'm not saying they were human. Obviously, they're not. They possess things that we, you know, abilities and physical traits, obviously, that are beyond ours. But mannerisms and behavior is so human-like and that's the thing that I think that blows you away when you're close to these things and you're around them a long time as you guys know uh, the intelligence the level of intelligence you're dealing with is far beyond any animal you're used to dealing with you I felt like in many occasions I was I was face to face in the dark maybe not face to face but face behind a tree or whatever to another human being that's a very high level thinking, intelligent. And almost knowing every step we're going to take before we even know it, you know. Um, So these DNA samples, I'm thinking, well, that's what we got to be looking for is something more leaning towards human in that aspect. And the amount of, so I I know you guys know this story, but the DNA that I collected in the end was blood. And uh, we had, we had a significant amount of blood. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't a huge puddle or anything, but it was—it was, you know, maybe the size of your thumbnail, um, you know, a, a nice big droplet of blood. And we had we had submitted that sample to Todd Distitel out of New York. Everyone, I think, knows who he is uh, in the Bigfooting field. Yeah, but uh, Leila had sent a good chunk of that sample to Todd at first because she had been interacting with Todd for a while. And Todd right away came back as, well, no, that's just, um, you know, that's just more contaminated, um, you know, sample. It's human. It's not it's it's not anything important. It's just human. And that was very disappointing to me because I was 90. I want to say 98.9, maybe 99 percent sure we had a blood sample from one of those um, one of those individuals there, one of those uh, Bigfoot there on the property. And so I was very disappointed with that. But, but I did have some samples left over, some, some quantity of that blood sample left over. Um, and I ended up having to send all of that to Melba. Um, I, uh, Adrian had talked to somebody. I'm still to this day not really sure who it was. But Adrian had been talking to somebody. Um, and they had gotten Adrian in touch of Mel- with Melba. And Melba was willing to look at that blood sample and our some of our hair samples and saliva samples and other things we had. And th- all of that stuff ended, ended up going to Melba. <clears throat> and to this day, I'm I'm pretty, pretty upset about giving away all of my samples to, to one lab and one person, because that's where it all ended up going. And I think Todd had discarded his samples early on. So... This thing I'd worked really hard to get, this uh, this blood sample, um, just in some ways uh, just got you know discarded and and improperly uh, handled. And again, I'm still kind of bitter to that to this day. I wish I would have held on to a you know a small bit of that, so we could have had something else to send to another third party or fourth party down the line to
1: have hey, analyzed. Man. Uh, we all wish that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, repeatability so. is the
0: key to science. You know, it's not just about yeah. uh, handling things correctly or knowing a lot of facts. You know, it's really repeatability. Exactly. Uh, you know, you can't send, it, you know, you can't send everything to one person. And I, I'm not talking to you, Dennis. You know this. You learned the hard way, unfortunately. And then, I, we all learned the hard way through you, um, in in our own situations too. But when people do collect things, if you have 30 hair samples, don't mm-hmm. give them all to anybody. Give two or three to somebody yes. and spread them around wi- widely. If you have, you know, a, th- a thumbnail size drip of blood somewhere, scrape off a tiny little amount and here and send it here, send it there, send it to a bunch of other places as well. Because one person saying something is just one person saying something. Who cares? Who believes it? Doesn't matter. If you have 30 people or to even 10 or five people singing the same song, suddenly you have a chorus of truth there. And uh, that goes a lot further amongst the scientists um, than, than anything else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I regret that to this day that I allowed that uh, to happen because I could have I could have I, I went, you know, I could have just held on to a small piece and not said anything. But I was obligated to, uh, uh, you know, to the people I was working with in the project. And I, I didn't want to be deceitful that way. And I felt like maybe they, they knew better, you know, maybe they knew better that. I gave them given them everything I had there, and I felt that it was in good hands. But to, the, you know, again in retrospect, I'm thinking, man, I just wish I would have held on to some of that, um, and and not, you know, put all our eggs in that one basket. But it is what it is. But it didn't, definitely doesn't take much blood. I mean, th- even a small little pinpoint sample would have been adequate, you know. Um, and uh, dang it, it just. It's one of those things that I regret there. so.
0: Well, yeah, you know, anybody who uh, has no regrets in their Bigfooting life hasn't been Bigfooting for very long. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
2: In the end, we, we thought we had all these pieces of footage. Most of them weren't very good. Um, some of them were... Fairly decent. I feel like there's a couple there that have been criticized, but um, I wasn't there for the facial footage, the Matilda footage. I wasn't there for that. I wasn't there for the initial pieces, the the pond where it was walking past the pond, and the pancake footage. Uh, Matt did that one. Matt took that with uh, surveillance uh, cameras. But I was there later on and around when she got some other interesting pieces, like uh, several uh, pieces of footage of them, you know, curled up in a fetal position, sleeping, uh, that was her. She was able to get close to him. Um, we weren't involved in that, but
1: um, you think that's real. Do you think that footage is legit?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do because I, I was around there enough Bobo and believe me, the entirety of the five years, in, in particularly the first six months I was there, I was constantly looking for Any kind of questionable shenanigans or things that didn't seem right. Uh, But I learned fairly quickly that, um, you know, when these things were around, you knew it and you knew how they acted and behaved. And um, she had this special bond with them and she could approach them, not all the time, but sometimes she could get close to them. And when she would do that, she would even be uneasy doing it. She felt, she even told me one time, she said that she feels like she's betraying their trust. By trying to get footage with the camera, and that they didn't like it, and she was afraid sometimes that they would hurt her. Um, I don't know if they ever had her before, but she she had some legitimate fears. Um, It wasn't like a situation where it it, you know maybe making it sound like this is a place where she just go at will and get whatever she wanted, but she couldn't do that. They even um, were very uh, unpredictable with her at uh, times. You know they wouldn't allow her to approach them. They would get mad at her. They would display against her they would you know um bluff charge do other things that would make her fearful as well at times so um you know i had to give her a certain amount of uh, leeway there and i would push her and i would press her to do more get more get out there get more footage and um you know it probably didn't help me sometimes they probably um you know they they would get angry with me quite a bit too that way but um, again, at the end, guys, I, I, we knew. I, I talked with Adrian a lot about this and Leela and we knew that um, the footage wasn't going to be, you know, the it, it just wasn't going to be adequate um, to be able to help push this along or get this mystery a little bit more, um, uh, you know, down the road. So we felt like DNA would be the one thing that people can't really, you know, um, and you know, deny or have problems with because you can't uh, can't alter DNA, you know, if you get a good sample, um, that should come back and prove that there's an unknown species there. Well, we set our goal in that last few months of trying to get DNA and we knew that they were taking food and we knew that we could put, you know, plates out. How do we get good samples? Because saliva wasn't cutting it and it wasn't substantial enough. Um, According to our one lab we were using, so we said to ourselves, "Well, let's try to get blood." And you guys remember the whole? Um, you remember Meldrum's? He did a documentary where they went up to, uh, I believe it was Snellgrove Lake. Was it the oh, one yeah. where they put the nail yeah. board? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was
0: Monster he, Quest. Actually, it's a Monster it, Quest episode.
2: Yeah. That's right. Yeah, where him and uh, Kurt Nelson went up, and they uh, they found a nail board. Well, you guys know about the nail board. I, I won't go into details about that, but. We had even come up with an idea to do that because we we knew that one of the game trails they they used not frequently but that they had used close to the property we thought we'd bury one with just a few nails sticking out but then you know then we also came up with an idea of putting fish hooks out in the trees along the trail in in hopes that it would snag a piece of flesh or, or hair and all of these things that we were coming up with i felt were just too too barbaric, too brutal because if we injured him and, and of course she felt that way too um that these were just things that um you know just was a little too over the top but we were desperate to try to get some some hair or skin or um uh blood you know preferably flesh or something that you know is very uh very pure and eventually we came to the conclusion well they are taking these place of food so what we could do is uh, we could try to get blood out of that. Now, how do we do that? So, what we we came up with this plan, and we took some uh, some sterile glass from uh, just some thin glass, like you find in the drinking glass or something, right? When you break a, a, a little, a, you know, thin-walled drinking glass, it's fine glass. It's it's sharp. We took some little shards of that that we had uh, sterilized. Uh, this glass we had sterilized, and then we took a, a clean new paper plate and a stack, and then we took some, uh, some crazy glue, and we put three of these little shards, arranged them at the very middle of this plate, and put them in a semicircle, right, and arranged them so the little sharp edges of this glass would um, just stick up just enough to just give you a little bit of laceration, not cut you deep, but set it up in a way where it would just lacerate just enough to draw some blood. And I mean, we painstakingly built this plate just to make sure that we wouldn't hurt them or, you know, hurt anything that would take food off of that very badly. Right. So we did this and then we took a piece of bread with peanut butter and and we flopped it right over the top of that glass. Right. So so the bread and the peanut butter was covering this glass. And then she we had her cover the whole thing with syrup. And this was something, like I said, they really seemed to like because they would clean the whole plate. And the idea was, is that if they cleaned the plate, hopefully we'd get them to lacerate their lip or, or tongue or something, you know, um, and we could get a little bit of blood that way. I know it kind of sounds brutal, but, you know, the tongue and the lips and the and areas, the, the tissue in the mouth area heals very quickly. And yeah. um, it's it's the least likely to get problems. So we thought that would be probably the the most the The most useful way to try to get something without creating a huge problem. You know, we did that. And for three nights, we, we would, we put that out there and nothing took this food. But on that third night, um, she said that she thought she had heard him back there. And, uh, we left the plate and went inside and we came back out a couple hours later and, and we could see that it had been moved, you know, it had been literally picked up and moved and, and, Placed about 20, 30 feet away from where we had left it. And it was completely cleaned off, just like they do. So we were pretty confident that we thought that this is one of them, you know, that that had actually taken this food. And I picked the plate up, was wearing rubber gloves, picked the plate up, kept it far away from myself, and immediately put it into a, um, a new paper bag, a large paper bag, one of the like grocery bags. And we sealed it up, carried it in, and when we looked at it under the light, we could see the blood on the on the plate. And I got photos of that plate. I took it over to Leela right away to the tour. She had a little makeshift ship lab in the back of the house. And she processed it and cut it up and sent the samples out. And uh, that part of that sample is what went to Melba. Or actually a good part of that sample went to Melba and uh uh, that's how we obtained that, and, uh, you know, like you said, to this day, we were just confident it had to be one of them because when when animals took those plates, we knew it. They chewed the plates up pretty good, and they usually left them in a spot, but most of the time, nothing even touched the plates. Nothing even touched the food in the time that we left it out there, so we were very confident that this was one of them that took that plate, so… Um, that's how we got that blood sample.
1: You know, uh, the footage I really liked was I think you got was the night footage where there's one walking. I think it was left to right. Then the female walking directly away, kind of waddling.
2: Oh yes, that that piece of footage was taken by her husband, and it was it was through night vision bubble.
1: Yeah, night the vision.
2: green. Uh, yeah, third gen. Yeah, that that's another one of those things where I said at the beginning of this, I told you guys you had to be there um to really understand this you know people look at that and they say oh, that's probably a guy in a suit but listen you know i was there enough i've seen these things um around that property and they're in their element when they're in the trees and they're very stealthy and quiet you know and, and hard to even uh get close to let alone see or even that could be i was standing next to one less than 10 feet and i never knew it was there and the only reason i i, I figured out it was there was it finally grunted right at me and i realized it was like less than 10 feet from my head right and otherwise i didn't smell it i didn't hear it i didn't even know it was there it was uh it was real spooky to know that they're that good and we're just totally blind dumb animals out there right in in the dark and we're, we're totally vulnerable but this piece of footage, he had he had gone into the barn. This is a time when we were still working with him pretty good, and we were trying to get more footage from them and they were trying to get footage for us. And we had outfitted them with a uh, a good high definition Sony uh, handycam, hard drive, um, you know, um, high def footage, all that, with with a good third gen PBS fourteen night vision, coupled with that. And those those worked pretty good in the dark, but you still had to have some light to get some usable image. Otherwise, it it got really grainy when it got pretty dark with no moonlight, right? Well, this particular night, there was enough moon um, and he had had gone out to the bar, or actually to his garage, and he was sitting in the garage. That's what he told me. I wasn't there when he took this footage, but he said he was sitting in the garage and had been waiting there for several hours. And he had her come out, put food out uh, near the garage. And he was sitting inside a darkened garage oh there was no light on he's inside this garage with a window that faced out the back and now this window had mini blinds on it and uh he's sitting behind the mini blinds looking out through the backyard at the tree line going down the back of their hill and he said that after a while he saw movement and so he took the camera up and he saw this thing coming towards where she had put the the food which was near where he was And he said that he turned the camera on and as the camera came on, this thing looked right at the uh, at the window and saw him inside this darkened garage. I don't know to this day. I don't know how I said, did you have the light? Because we had the the way we had these cameras set up is that it had an eye cup and you had to put your eye to the eye cup. And so I doubt that he he had any light leaking from the camera because he had to look through the eye cup to to, uh, take footage. And this thing saw him moving inside of this darkened garage in the dark at night. And he said what it did is it instantly spun around on its, I think he said it was his left leg, but it was was walking towards him. And it instantly spun on its left leg and started walking back in the other direction, back down the hill. And he said, by that time, that's when the camera got started recording. By the time he got the, the on button on and got it recording, what you see is it's walking away from him back down the hill and it goes down a little ways and then there's a patch of very tall weeds and it goes you see it go to these uh to this to these tall weeds and stuff and it kind of turns sharply to its left and walks behind this cluster of uh of shrubs and weeds and it just stops there and uh, i guess it's looking back up towards him but you lose it as soon as it gets into the weeds you just kind of just totally lose it in that night vision because the quality of the, you know, the footage is just not very good. But when they stop moving, you just can't see them. They just blend in so well. But that was that piece of footage. And he said what was remarkable to me about that Bobo was that he said that he was in a darkened garage, thought he had a perfect trap set up and that it wouldn't see him. And somehow it still sees him in this garage and goes back down the hill into the dark and, uh, you know, goes back into the trees or the weeds back down in there. So it's one of those many, many experiences where you say to yourself, well, had it been people messing around, how would they have, they've got to have spectacular night vision. They've got to have the ability to see and superhuman abilities to be able to see and do the things that these things did around there. And imagine so like doing that, even if if somebody's wearing a suit, for instance, and they're walking around in a suit trying to fool people. How are they going to get, be able to see so well and hear so well, even within the confines of a suit? I, you know, again, you had to be there and experience this stuff to to understand the the depth of the uh, abilities of these things and and how often things like that happen that just told you that you're not dealing with, with anything but something, you know, phenomenal out there, something that's not like us at all.
1: I mean, I thought it didn't walk like a human. It looked like it walked like a sasquatch to me. It looked like it had wider hips, and
2: you know, Bobo, that those things—they're the ones. And I saw them six times in the time that I was there in that five years. I saw them with my own eyes six times. Um, I, you know, we got some footage pieces. Mostly it was them. I got a few small pieces myself, but to actually see them moving and walking around, uh, my impression was when I saw them with my with an unaided eye was I was looking at another person for a brief second because what I saw, what the movement I saw looked very human like in in almost every aspect. It wasn't hunched over or, you know, moving around like a gorilla or a monkey. These things move very graceful and very human like and unhurried. They weren't running and they weren't um, you know, acting any different than a person would act in many ways. And when this one in that footage, when it turned around and it was walking back down the hill, you could see the body shape of that thing in it. And and again, the ones I've seen, Bobo had that same body shape. They were not super white at the, at the shoulders. They had almost wider hips. So we referred to the ones around there, which we saw, I wanna say there was three of them that we saw mostly three of them. We referred to them as, as females because they have a female, that pear shape of the body, the, the hips being wider than the shoulders. And I say three of them, I say there was a very young one that you described in the pancake footage. And then there was a, a one that was about six foot in height and the other one, which is so slightly taller than that. And they all had the same body shapes, except for that very young one had a very large um, elongated head with the body. You know, it had a, a odd shape to the head. It was just kind of like an egg turned on its side, not not straight up and down, but on its side uh an elongated skull kind of uh, underneath that hair and i think you can kind of see that in that pancake but it's just got an odd toddler child toddler look to it you know
1: which ones did you personally see out of the other three uh
2: i saw the the i believe it was the one around six foot tall and the reason i say believe it was that one is because it was uh it was underneath me, I was up on a tree stand and it came out from behind some some shrubs and bushes in the tree line that we were on. And uh, it came around trying to skirt around this uh, tree stand that me and her husband were in. And uh, I saw it from head to toe, but I was looking down at it at like a 45 degree angle from about 15 feet up. And I was looking at it, it was dark, but there was enough moonlight. I could see the entire body perfectly in the moonlight and uh it had that same shape the, the hips were really wide and it looked just heavy set you know just solid big boned uh but not super tall just big boned you know um but yeah that that was uh, i mean i i could go on for hours telling you about all the different experiences i had there and there's some pretty interesting stuff uh just don't have the time but um you know in five years i spent I spent about two weeks out of every month over there. You know, I still had a family here in Colorado. I had to be home for, but I would go out there and spend about you know ten days to fourteen days at a time, and uh, be out there almost every night when I could, and and um, just trying to get stuff. And like I said, most of the time we just didn't get anything. But there was those times that made up for all of that, (laughs) all that dead time. And you know, Bobo, had I known that you wanted to come out there, or even you, Cliff god i would have been happy to have you guys come out i could have got uh, i could have uh, we could have brought you out and hosted you i just didn't have any idea you know really really didn't know um you know that you know um uh, yeah i could have done that but I, I didn't know that you guys you know had the time or wanted to even do that but well honestly boy, dennis
0: I, uh, I, yeah. I i i th- I, I knew you at the time. I think we'd become friends before you went out there, like maybe a year or two before that. But I, when I heard that you got put on the project like that, I, I, I took a couple of steps back to give cause I respected you and I wanted you to have all the space. I didn't, you know, you didn't need me, you didn't need me nosing around in, in your business. So I just kind of like let you do what you need to do. I figured, well, I'm going to catch up with Dennis. Eventually I'll figure, you know, I'll hear some stuff. So. Yeah. Well, uh,
2: you know, here's the thing. What I like to say is, if given enough time, if if I could have had you out there as a guest, which I think Adrian would have been fine with that, um, but had I had enough time and you guys spent enough time there with with us there, um, you definitely would have come away scratching your uh, your head, thinking, man, there. Just spend enough time there, and you'd have your own experiences that would, you know, blow you away. It really are really was some fascinating stuff that happened around there. And that's one of the things I found about that area is that a lot of people around there have had experience and continue to have experiences, but they just stay hush about it.
1: My favorite part about the whole thing is that it's where the late great hero of mine, Dr. John Bindernogel, got to see his one and only Sasquatch was at that place.
2: Yeah, John, John, great guy, as you guys know. <clears throat> and uh, we had him out for two weeks and uh, great, great, great great man he uh well as you all know everyone that knew him uh knew and loved john he was just uh really good at heart and what a loss for all of us <clears throat> when he passed but uh in the two weeks he got to experience uh, several things um including we had rocks thrown at us from the tree line um vocalizations he's heard and um and then of course his own sighting that Uh, we were at their house and rainy day here's something that that's interesting cliff or bobo i want to ask you guys this i don't think we've ever talked about this but one of the things that i found over time in that location was that you know everyone tends to think of the uh these these things as being primarily nocturnal right they don't tend to to be too active during the day at least that's what we we believe but The encounters around there occurred at all times, mostly at night. But you know, I I would never say that that's the only time we'll ever have experiences. It could be first thing at sunlight, be ten in the morning, two in the afternoon, or you know, eleven o'clock at night, or whatever. It didn't matter. It could happen at almost any time. But what I did find over over these five years is that when we had bad weather when when it was snowy or particularly rainy and cloudy overcast and just generally yucky and you didn't want to be outside guess who seemed to be more active and it was it was a rainy really just kind of a crappy day that, that day that john had his daylight sighting. and i i i tend to believe that maybe they know that we're just not as uh, you know people are just not out in that stuff it's often it's a little safer for them to be out but we tended to have more activity during the day when it was like that overcast and cloudy and in that particular day uh we saw one from the inside the house up at the tree line and and the woman had said that she had heard him back in there and she thought they were there so she went out with an umbrella and she's walking up and down this tree line you know a couple hundred yards from the house and we're watching her through a window and uh, she stops and you could see her kind of looking in a direction of the trees and talking. <clears throat> and eventually we saw this, uh, this Brown, this Brown patch of hair moving back in the trees. And you could and John, we gave John a pair of binoculars. He said he could see his shoulder and, uh, part of an arm and uh, it was standing there looking towards her. So, um, I think that was his sighting right there.
0: I got to speak to him about it. He said it wasn't a great view, but he does definitely think it was, he did think it was a Sasquatch. Um, now to address the nocturnal versus diurnal thing, um, obviously they're not exclusively nocturnal because of the Patterson-Gimlin film, for example. But um, do you feel uh, through your experiences there that they're more prone to come closer at night or do you think it doesn't matter at all?
2: I think that at night, yeah, I think that we definitely got closer to them at night than we did during the day um, at least that they made themselves known when we were you know at times when we were close to them and, and that came in the form of uh, some aggressiveness like you know we would work those those tr- those woods those tree lines quite a bit and i mean when i say work them, we would be walking from just about before dark we'd go out there and we'd have camcorders and we'd have i'd have my audio gear going i, I kept them in a shirt pocket i had this a digital recorder Um, you know, like a a digital audio recorder going for audio. And then we kept camcorders and extra batteries and night vision. And we stuffed them in pockets and we'd put them on, try to conceal and hide them, but we carried them with us all the time, right? And most of the time when we get close to them, uh, after dark, I felt like we could get pretty close because even though we had the equipment, they were still, they had the advantage because they're back into this thick foliage into the trees. And of course, you know, even with night vision, if you're looking into the trees, you still have shading. And it's it's like during the day when the sun's shining down into the trees, if, even if you have moonlight, the stuff cast shadows and you can't, they could be in there 10 feet and you still can't see them even with night vision, unless they're moving, you know. And yeah. uh, we, could get, we could get close to them. And we knew we were close because we would hear them. And, you know, sometimes they would literally uh, just, you know, make, Odd noises or very subtle noises, and you would know it's not a you know uh, three hundred pound squirrel back in there in the middle of the night, you know, chirping at you. Um, and, and there other times we would literally hear you know sounds that uh, were I, w- I don't want to say like language, but uh, you know guttural guttural sounds. We knew the sounds they made, and we knew it was them. Um, one particular night clip, I got in, uh, we were going to put food out for him. And this was a period of time when she felt like, since I was there a lot that I should make them more acclimated to me being involved in, in putting food out with her. Mm-hmm. And I would go with her a few times. And then I went out one evening. It was pretty damn cold. It was middle of winter. Um, but it was a clear, starry night. And, uh, I went out with the husband and we walked out way out to the back of the field and got to the edge of it. And she had said that she had thought she had heard him back in there earlier that day. So she thought maybe that would be a good place for us to go look. So we did. And uh, I carried a plate of food all the way back there with with her husband. And we get towards the back of the field. And like I said, this is all, you know, all thick woods and kind of spooky. And we're standing out in the open field. And I looked at her husband and I said, OK, well, do you want to take the food in there or should I take it in there? He goes, no, you do it. So I picked up the plate and I'm holding both my hands and I start walking into the trees. And now this area of the trees had a lot of uh, cedars. There's a lot of cedars out there, you know, so it's a deciduous forest. Right. But there is some evergreens in there mixed in in that part of Kentucky. So these Mm -hmm. cedars, when, you know, even in the winter, they're very thick and it's pretty dark in there. And that, that was this part of the woods was a part that had a lot of cedar growth in it. So I'm kind of walking into the trees here and I'm getting into where it's like a dark corridor and I literally cannot see the plate in my hands. It's that black. I could look straight up and I could see the pinpoint of the stars through the tree canopy, but I can't see in front of me. So I'm, I'm walking and I'm, literally using my feet to fill in front of me. So I don't trip. And I I went in maybe 20 or 30 yards into the trees. I start, I start just doing what she does. You know, I start trying to talk to them and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm not sure they're there. I'm just doing what she does. Right. So I'm holding this plate of food and I'm going, I got your food for you. And here it is, you know, and I'm trying to talk in this kind of sing songy voice that she does. And, and I'm, I'm, I say a few times, I got your food for you. And then I stop and I'm listening and it's, you could hear a pin drop. It is an absolute steel night. There is it's you know maybe you know twenty degrees outside. It's cold. It's dry. It's not a sound. No animals. Nothing. And uh, I said it a couple more times. And every time I say it, I stop and I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm strained to hear and I don't hear anything. And and I did this about four or five times. And I, and uh, about the fifth time, I said, "I got your food for you here," and. Were suddenly to my left and just a little bit above me, and I swear it couldn't have been more than ten feet from me. It's just this, just like that, just a. <laughs> I'll tell you what, guys. I wanted to come out of my boots so quickly, I scared the you know what out of
1: guys. Oh God, yeah.
2: See, I I was so I I didn't want to say I froze up, but her husband was back. He heard it. He's back at the tree lines, and he's going, "Dude, dude, dude, put that down!" <laughs> and I'm just sitting there thinking, "Oh, of course. That's why it huffed. It just wanted me to put it down and quit talking and get the hell out of there. It just made no yeah. sense to me at them." So I, I did. I, I every bone in my body, guys, wanted me to go running out of those woods full speed and just throw that plate right because it had been standing there that whole time in this pitch black and I never knew it was there. I couldn't smell it. I never heard it. Didn't have any clue. It was right there, but you know, it was there. And uh, I set that plate down as quickly and and calmly as I could and turned and walked straight out of there. And I wanted to run out of there because it was that close to me, but you know, God, how many times have we been in there? And one, it was that close and you never even had a, had an idea, you know, that, um, you know, one was, was that close to you? So,
0: you know, it makes me wonder how long that thing was standing there. Just like looking at you and thinking like, what, what what's up with this new guy, man? Like what, what's wrong yeah. with this guy? I can't <laughs> stop putting the thing down. <laughs> right?
2: Cliff. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm like, I was a uh, dude. I, I was blown away at how I couldn't smell. It. Cause I, you know, you from time to time we would smell them and, and believe me, they had a rank. I mean, it was, it was bad, but there's other times that we were real close to him like that. Or they were, you know, we knew they were in the vicinity and you couldn't smell them. And it was mostly in the winter. It was really cold. I just figured because it was so cold, they were not exuding a lot of odoriferous scents, you know, or anything. But at that point, I never smelled him. He was that close. I never heard it or smelled it. And I'm not going to say him. It could have been a him or her. I don't know. But it was right there. And that whole time, and God, I just thought, if it was light enough, or I had the ability to see how remarkable that would have been to been that close to it, you know.
1: But, <laughs> yeah. Didn't you guys? Wasn't there a ten foot male seen there, like by the telephone, the light pole one time?
2: Uh, so I, I don't ten foot. No, I I think that we came to the conclusion it was around seven and a half to eight foot, and um, the the guy, her husband, actually had a very frightening run into it um, one night out of the tree stand. And we were able to get a pretty good idea of its height because it had moved a limb when he was up in the tree stand. It was nearly to his knees while he was up on a tree stand. And he it moved this limb, and he told me where its head was. And the next day, we were able to go out there and measure that to get a pretty close idea of, you know, figured it was between seven and a half to eight foot tall. But what the guy kept impressing upon me, Bobo, is like we've all heard – he said, dude, it wasn't that it was just because it was that freaking tall because it was tall, but he says it was the size of the thing. It was enormous. He, he was shooken up about that for days because he had seen the other ones, the females. I want to say the females, the smaller ones. He had seen the other ones for the prior few years. And. He had never really seen the male, the big male. The male wasn't around that often. Uh, From what we understood, from what we could surmise from the situation was, this was a family group, but the females and the young one seemed to be around there most often. And the male would come and go. You'd only see him every, you know, maybe every couple months, he might come around for a very short period of time and he was gone again. Um, And-
1: Did you notice more knocks when the male was around? Would you notice any different patterns? Vocalizations, or did you ever get any patterns at all, like as far as vocals or knocks?
2: No, it, in fact, there I found that unusual. I think that because of the proximity of all the homes, and being that it was a, a rural setting, and that literally homes were um, on all these, you know, hollow ridges and down these roads, and that they these houses literally dropped back into these hollows. I think that in terms of vocalizations. I don't think they vocalized loudly or very much, or there was a few occasions we heard wood knocks or wood knock types of sounds, but rarely. Um, And we did associate that with them. But when it came to vocalizations, these weren't very vocal, They, they, they weren't very vocal there. They just did not make a lot of screams or noises. Now having said that I did get a fantastic series of screams from one of them one evening on their property I recorded this on a new digital uh, SD card media and when I went to review it I thought oh this is the most awesome it was literally that woman screaming crazy freaky you know crazy you know ah, ah, you know that kind of stuff and when I went to dread it pull it off the recorder later that night it was corrupted and I lost it all <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was so, I'll tell you what, I, I just one of the many things that just make you just go, damn it, I just want to give up. But th- but often, no, we, we hardly ever heard them, and we didn't get much in terms of wood knocks around there. But the big male, we knew it was around from time to time because either she said she would get a glimpse of it or see it. The husband had his run-in with, with it one night. And it scared him so bad he didn't want to go back into the woods for a long time because again he tried to tell me he impressed upon me i never saw it, but he said the size of this thing was what what scared him so bad he said that thing's walking around in the woods out there and it's it's just not there's just not right is what he said it's just not right He illuminated face with a with a headlamp that he was wearing that night when he was sitting in the tree stand trying to get footage. And this thing came up to the tree stand and pulled a branch down, and he heard it move the branch. And we looked over; he saw this thing looking right at him. And he said that the head—it was a human face, high cheekbones, like a like a Native American kind of, but it had almost like a semi-beard. So it had a male figure, like you know, feature like a beard, but not full beard like a man, but you know, the sides and the mustache kind of thing. And then it had a had a, a clear forehead, no hair in the forehead, but then it had hair, you know, like a like a human in many ways, shaggy long hair. But he said this thing had teeth, and when he hit it with the uh, with the headlamp of his uh, you know his light it was a headlamp, he said that this thing kind of brought one of its hands up to kind of shield its eyes, and it and it bared its teeth, <clears throat> and he said the, it had very prominent canines. Kind of like that facial footage, you can see a little bit of canine in there, but he said that the canines were very prominent, so um, that stood out to him. But he said he said Dennis, he kept saying Dennis. It's the size of the thing. He said it it, it was the size of a five gallon bucket. It was a head that was four or five times the size of any human he's ever seen. It was just enormous, and he said the shoulders just they looked to be like four foot wide, you know, just incredibly massive. And it scared him to death because he said that up to that point, he had had been kind of dealing with the others and um, they were more in line or proportion to a, a large person. But this thing was well beyond that.
0: OK, so, Dennis, like you, you had uh, a, a lot. You had six sightings. You said you, you were around these things pretty often. I'd say, you know, more than your average bear or maybe not more than a bear. But you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> what sort of behaviors like, like what sort of interesting behaviors besides? Oh, they can see in the dark perfectly or they're really quiet. What sort of things uh, did you observe them uh, doing or have done? What, what, what can you tell us about what you saw there and, and what you learned from that?
2: Well, that's a tough, that's a good question. I I think that one thing I learned is that you have to be very persistent and predictable. Um, If you want, uh, for me, the only way to really approach this research anymore is it would be great to find another situation like theirs where you have people that they're kind of accustomed to. And if you're in that situation, and I'm sure there's people that's probably been doing this much longer than me and probably far more better uh, or more advanced. Probably working, maybe working with even a, a group that's uh, more, you know um, used to being around people. But to me, that's really the ideal situation. in order for us to understand these things is to be uh, is, is to be in a situation like that where you can have some semblance of predictability about these things. In other words, you can say, hey, we know that they're going to be around here every so many days or every few weeks. We don't know exactly what time. But if they're going to be around here, how can I be prepared to maybe have an interaction with them? And and I think that a, a big part of that is just to be a very predictable human being, be very non-threatening, be pretty open, and don't show fear and be afraid. I mean, that was something that was very difficult for me to do, but I I kept a poker face all the time, and I did not, you know, show fear and and uh, try to act like I was afraid of these things. I tried to approach, you know, areas they were in and sit down quietly and be patient and just wait. And that was a big thing for me. I think I had a lot of, uh, interactions because I would just sit quietly and wait for them to come to me or to, you know, you know, you guys, I'm sure you've, you've experienced this. You sit in a spot, you have a feeling they're around. And so you sit, sit patiently and eventually you'll hear them come closer, or they will do things that, in other words, they kind of um, cue you in that they're they're around there. They'll make noises deliberately, so you know that you know they're they're kind of telling you that they're there. So if you can reach those kind of milestones, I think that that's a pretty good um, a pretty good place to be in this research because you're kind of uh, getting a certain level of trust. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for, but. The big thing is just be predictable and be it somebody that you you can demonstrate that you're not someone to be feared or be afraid of, um, you know, by them, because you're very predictable. You're not going to do anything that um, will frighten them, you know, to be threatening to them.
0: You know, a number of years ago, I came to you for some advice. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you remember or not, uh, but I had a spot up in Mount Hood here that I, they were they seemed to be at rather, you know, rather often what you said to me, and you said it so concisely, is like, you need to become a predictable feature in their environment.
2: Exactly. And, and that's the way I try to approach any new areas as well. You know, I'm sorry, Cliff, what was the other question?
0: Oh, I wanted to know about any unusual behaviors that you might have observed out there that uh, maybe aren't widely known. Uh, I think I remember one time I I was talking to you years ago, and you mentioned something about you finding areas where they had cleared the forest debris away from the forest floor. Am I remembering that correctly? Or
2: yeah, yes, exactly. Actually, uh, documented that several times. Places that she had seen them uh, sleeping, like I mentioned earlier, the the, the footage where they're kind of in a semi fetal or fetal position. Um, we've gone back later and found that that area that they were bedded down in was cleared of debris. Okay, all the, all the, uh, the, the stuff, the leaf and the glitter and the, and the, the grass, it's cleared away so they're, they're directly on the soil, which I found kind of odd. And even in the snow, I came across uh, beds several times. In, in fact, one of them, very early on in the project, within the first two months of the project cliff, I was uh, at, at the location and came across uh, tracks that were in the cedars. This was in December of that first year. And mm-hmm. these tracks went through the cedars. And then there was a bedding area that was underneath one of the cedars, you know, one of the areas that didn't have as much snow. And it had cleared all the snow out and was bedded down. And all the duff, all the litter and the, the needles and the, and the leaves and was bedded straight on the soil, and I found that was interesting. I, I, I discovered that several times during that uh, project. And another interesting thing, Cliff, I'm sure you've heard of this. You remember Kathy Mosquith, I believe, was the one that um, actually brought to light. Somebody had found what they call a cedar ball. So oh, was, yeah, yeah.
0: I've, I've seen pictures of that, right.
2: Yeah, we discovered something very similar to that along one of the game trails out there, um, somewhere in the middle of the project. And it was basically, there was a lot of cedar trees with that very fine bark. You could literally peel it, right? And mm-hmm. that bark will come off in strips. And we found a degraded, it looked to me like something very similar to Kathy had, uh, but it was like a ball and it was stuffed with leaves, basically with a lot of like oak and uh, what I, I forget the other type of tree around there, but deciduous trees, leaves were inside of this crudely woven it was about the size of a cantaloupe i want to say to this day i can't tell you what where why or how Um, i don't even know if it was a bigfoot that made it but it was it was very reminiscent of that when i i saw that so another odd thing there that um you know i have to say really struck out on my memory
0: this conversation could literally go on, I think, for another three hours, and we haven't spoken anything and won't because we don't have time. But we haven't we haven't even spoken about your um, your bigfooting adventures elsewhere.
2: I want to see Cliff after after the whole fiasco with Velba and the the Erickson project. Adrian is a good man. Uh, you know, I worked with that man for five years. He had true, pure intentions. Um, on trying to do this because, you know, he was trying to answer his own questions. And, you know, he had experiences growing up in in Canada. He had run in several times with these creatures. And he's one of these people, like many of us, who had to know, you know, he he was determined to come about, uh, you know, answers to this mystery. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't come down himself and do it. And he had to have us doing it because he had to run that business. So he was pretty well tied to that. But his intentions were right. He was, he, he, he was, you know, he did all he could. Um, some people have kind of drug him through the mud a little bit. But Adrian, really, his intentions was pure. He wanted to help solve this mystery with this project. And the way things turned out in the end with the couple we were working with and poor Leela, the things that she had to go through and, um, and other people that we dealt with, there, good and bad, mostly uh, difficulties. I just have got a resentment for the entire, not people, because I know a lot of great people in BigFooting, but I, I just I, I jaded about the whole thing. Because yeah. here you have, yeah, I have a blood sample. I have, I, we've worked very hard on this project. We thought, hey, I, we didn't, never once didn't think that we were going to be the ones to break the soap. And we're just trying to help move the ball down the line a little bit more to help connect some dots so other people can kind of put in too, right? But along the way, the difficulties that we had to overcome, and not overcome, but I mean, we had a lot of difficulties we couldn't overcome. We just, the problems that were constantly coming up, you know, no matter what we do as as investigators and researchers, we're not gonna really affect anything until the time is right. But um, I I honestly just didn't feel like the time is right then. Too many things, um, you know, came up that just, you know, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and and I became jaded about the whole thing. And I just thought, well, if we can't do it now with what we have, um, other than having a body, a living specimen or a body, there's really no way to do this and move that forward. And, you know, our whole intentions with the Erickson project was, was really to hopefully set up a location that we could bring people in people like you and Bobo and John and, and, um, Jeff Meldrum and, and biologists and anthropologists and people who could you know, have some bit of interaction with these things because we saw potential in that location that, hey, if there's any place that we have a good chance of people getting to see these things and maybe witness a little bit of be, their behavior and verify that these things actually exist and maybe get some biological evidence out of them, this might be the spot but you know everything just went awry with that whole project everything that could go wrong went wrong and every everybody and all their problems and things that the you know humans created more problems than we ever needed to have on that project which really is what kind of destroyed the whole thing it was just just human habits human bad i i don't want to get into the details but i'm just saying it was people who screwed it up it wasn't really the creatures
0: then, one final question. Do you think that uh, the the body of evidence, like the footage, the 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 reports, the footprints, the, all that stuff, do you think it'll ever be made public for everyone to, you know re- to to check out for themselves?
2: You know, it's up to Adrian, really. i um I've been under an NDA for a long time, and and he's given me a lot of liberty to talk about it, but I, I think it's really up to him. He kind of, he's like me. He just threw his hands up in the end after the whole problem with the DNA in Melba um, and the paper and everything else, and he kind of just gave up on it all and,
0: Well, that's the thing. You know, that's what I think that's a lot of the reason that Bobo and I were, were frankly kind of, you know, harassing you for a while to get on the show. Um, because, uh, at the end of the day, Bobo and I both know you, we both know Lila. I I don't, I don't know Adrian. I don't know the people, the property owners. I don't know anybody else except for you two um and you know money maker and a few other people but you guys were the main folks there you know you and lela and i know both of you i like both of you and i trust both of you you know you you've shown your quality um so if if you say it i believe that's the truth that as you see it um, and that's why I think it's so important that you came on the show today and, uh, and told us your version of it to the best of your, uh, you know, a, a best of your ability, um, from your perspective, this is the truth. Cause, um, I know you well enough that I'm not going to question anything you tell me cause I trust you. You're, you're a man of integrity and honesty and a good observer. No one, no one, uh, no, no reason to lie. I mean, there just doesn't make any sense, you know? Um, so just having you coming on today and setting the record as straight as it can be from one man's perspective, I think is an important thing that you've done. So thank you very much.
2: Yeah. Thank you guys. I appreciate you giving me a chance to tell a little bit more about, you know, my side. I, like I said, I'm reluctant to do it anymore. I just, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm occupied with other things in life, but I, I definitely appreciate the chance to, uh, you know, talk with you guys about it because we never really have talked in depth
0: about it it was really good hearing from you again man i mean it's been too long um thanks a lot again for coming on and
2: all right hey bubble take care buddy thank and, you so uh, much yeah good talking to you both you guys and appreciate it
1: i guess i'll let you go to bed it's getting pretty late and everyone else thanks for tuning in we really appreciate it spread the word if you like what you hear pass it on some other people know and until the next time keep it squatchy